Layovers 005 to Munich. Hi, hey, Alex. How I'm are you? Good. I'm good. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. We're going to Munich this yeah, week. Yeah, exciting. <laughs> I, I, I'm excited to talk about Munich a little bit later. It's uh, I learned a lot about this airport that I've been to a few times, but I think there's some interesting stuff that we're going to share a little bit later. Yeah, exactly. The uh, uh, first a, f- a few news about the show itself. Uh, we got a lot of views in the last. We uh, really last did. Show. That was yeah, more than six hundred and fifty listens. So that's really good. Thank you everyone for the support. Uh, the sound. Uh, we got some good feedback that the sound was actually better. We went live with a new system last week. Uh, so we really hope that we'll be able to continue to have such a good sound. Please. Continue to give us feedback either on Twitter, Facebook. Everything is on our website. Yeah, I, I, I wish you guys could see my uh, my setup in my office here. I, my <laughs> uh, my wife calls it the uh, my my blanket fortress because I've just hung blankets and soundproofing up all around. It, it looks a little like you know fourth gradey, but uh, it seems to work. No, exactly. Your sound is much better. I used to see books behind you, and now I just see like a big bunch of like clothing and stuff. <laughs> Uh, the other thing, uh, we've been added our show to, uh, I didn't mention this last week to Stitcher as well. Uh, anyway, if you want to learn about how to listen to the show, you can just go on layovers.2 forward slash FAQ and you'll have a lot of insight on how to listen to us, follow us, etc. Uh, coming back to so the, the big news of the week is <laughs> basically the same as last week because everybody talks about it. It's still the U.S. versus Gulf Airlines. Uh, you, whether wherever you would go, either on you know forums like airliners or you know flyer flyer talk, everybody is actually talking about this. There's like fistfights on who's right, what's fair, what's unfair, etc. Have you have you seen the same thing? Yeah, it's it's a, the hottest topic I've seen in in the airline world in a very very long time, and it's. It's frightening how quickly it escalated. I know we said that last week, but I'm amazed by this. I really am. You know, there's there's something called uh, the Godwin's law. Uh, it's like when you have a debate, very quickly, it uh, you know how fast do you go to talk, to name the other party a, a, a Nazi, you know, Nazi like a German. Essence. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, I, it didn't go that far, but it's almost gone that far because just after we recorded last week, uh, the CEO of Delta, Anderson, said. Uh, on Richard Quest, uh, uh, the anchor from CNN, he said that it's a great irony to have the UAE from the Arabian Peninsula talk about that, given the fact that our in- industry was really shocked by the terrorism of 9-11, which came from terrorists from the Arabian Peninsula. So, wow. What like, was he thinking? What was yeah, he thinking? I think it was, uh, to be fair, I think it was a heat of the moment. Uh, it's a very touchy subject of 9-11 is, but also this whole what is fair, what is unfair. Delta's PR department went into crisis mode. They released a first, uh, a first press release that was not that great. So, like on the heels of it, they received the second press release that actually backtracked even more. They apologized for it. Richard Quest invited uh, the representatives of the major three Gulf Airlines uh, next, and you had uh, so. Al Baker, who is the CEO of Qatar Airways, he's always very outspoken. We know him. And he said, you know, quite frankly, I think uh, m- uh, Mr. Anderson needs to go and study in a university <laughs> to find out what the difference is between equity and subsidy. Uh, and then he calls out to call out, you know, many subsidies the U.S. has done. And uh, he also calls basically Anderson to be in- inefficient. You know, he's a very inefficient CEO. So, but that's Al Baker. A much cooler head uh, prevailed with uh, Tim Clark. Uh, he's a very, very, very smart guy uh, in the industry, the CEO of uh, Emirates. Uh, he said, I'm not angry. I'm a little bit concerned that Mr. Anderson crossed the line with what he said in regard to 9 11. 
which has caused great offense in this part of the world, obviously. Uh, when you think about it, Delta is partner on Sky Team with Saudi, which is the Saudi Airlines yeah. Airways. I'm not sure. There hasn't been any comments of that. Again, we're not here to say what was right was wrong. It shows. It goes to show that it's a very, very touchy subject. We haven't heard the end. Of no, we haven't. I, I think uh, he, it was a very strange thing to say for the CEO of such of arguably the world's largest airline. And we'll actually talk about that a little bit later. But what a strange, strange thing to say that that really made no no point. It, it didn't. It didn't in any way boost his argument uh, that the the Emirates uh, or Qatar or anybody else is subsidized in a manner that is in somehow unfair. So it was such a strange thing to say that in, derailed the argument entirely and probably will put off this Senate hearing in the or government hearing in the U.S. You know, for a long time, or at least take away any, any of its credibility. Yeah. The uh, uh, then also some sides have been uh, kind of been created here because we said last week. So the unions were for once aligned with the uh, the major four U.S. airlines, but U.S. airports have actually sided with Open Sky, so they obviously sided with uh, uh, free trade agreements to say they want competition because obviously a lot of them are actually winning by having new airlines. Smaller airlines are not by, uh, part of the big four. So JetBlue especially has also expressed its support for uh, for uh, free, uh, free trade ag- agreements in disguise. The, tr- the U.S. Business Travel Coalition, when they are actually, that, was, that comment was interesting. It said, uh, now that U.S. airlines have secured antitrust humility, Industry consolidation and con- uh, blah 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 are uh, basically. He says that carriers are shamelessly seeking to close off U.S. markets to competition from foreign carriers. But he mentions um, immunity. Uh, it, it, one thing that I, I think don't people do not uh, understand is what is that hum, uh, immunity. So basically, when a U.S. airline, U.S. carrier. Uh, goes into an alliance, uh, especially it, it was created first and foremost for uh, transatlantic flights with uh, other airlines. So we have the three big ones, One World, Star Alliance, and Sky Team. They gain uh, some kind of immunity, so they cannot be uh, prosecuted for antitrust violations. Yeah. And that is the argument of smaller airlines or airlines that are not part of an alliance. It's, yeah, well, what about us? Which, by the way, makes me think that isn't, and I want to ask you the question, Alex, do you think that basically that move from the four big uh, U.S. carriers isn't basically enough to say to the three ones in the Gulf, hey, guys, just join an, an alliance and let's get done with this? Well, possibly, yeah. But, I, you know, one of them already is part of, a, of an alliance. Um, Qatar is part of, of, of one world now. Uh, True. I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think that they, the U.S. carriers are not seeing the benefit of the low fuel cost that they thought they would. The consolidations are taking longer. They're 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 more expensive, and they are terrified by the fact that Emirates can drop a A three eighty on the Milan New York route. Just which will happen? Which has happened? Yeah, and that they the fact that you know their their yields from from Dallas to to Dubai are very very low, and it doesn't bother them because they are a profitable airline. Uh, it's. I think it's fear, frankly. I really do think it's fear. I'm not suggesting. I haven't drawn my own conclusions on this, this yet. That that there wasn't a subsidy involved in the uh, Middle Eastern carriers, but I think it, it was a gigantic misstep by the the big U.S. carriers to do this again, again. Oh, 
You just mentioned uh, you just mentioned oil, and we'll get to that because today we decided, since it was a hot topic, we'll we'll talk. The main topic of the show later on will be about the rise of these uh, three golf careers. We'll go a little bit over the history to to make to inform people and make uh, let let all of them have a better opinion. We have our own, not defined. I mean, I'm like you. It's very like I said last week. It's very hard to to take sides. One thing though, I wanted to mention here because you just mentioned oil is that uh, Emirates uh, just is considering dropping the fuel surcharge. Which, yeah, and you know my opinion on this. I think <laughs> that is a very large symbolic middle finger to the U.S. carriers. It's it's, it's just another oh look at the look at the uh, another arrow that we have in our quiver to beat you guys. We can do this all day, every day. Bring it. But to be to, to to be fair, if you look at the the airlines in the U.S., Hawaiian uh, has dropped the fuel surcharge from flights to and from South Korea. It has reduced it to flights uh, to and from Japan. So it, it's possible. It is possible, and I welcome any airline and any country that that drops any form of uh, of ancillary penalty. As frankly, I think that's what they are: air passenger duty here in the UK. Fuel sur- surcharges. I urge you guys, next time you book a plane ticket, look at the fare breakdown. And you will get so angry. There's nothing you can do about it, which is a really unpleasant feeling. But it's it's awful, the number of fees and things that are tacked on to every, every plane ticket that we buy. So anybody that's taking steps to eliminate or at least reduce these is a champion as far as I'm concerned. I do agree, especially with the price of oil falling down everywhere, by the way, not only in the Middle East, because some people are confused about this. It's, uh, you know, it's about, I mean, we'll, we'll get over this in, in the later segment of the show. Uh, the last comment I want to make about this is that probably this debate can be linked as well with the fact that the DOT hasn't still given the permission, the license to fly for Norve- Norwegian. So Norwegian is trying to uh, do a low-cost airline that will actually fly from Europe to the US and back. And usually, you know, these kind of licenses, you know, are given in, you know, two, three months. Yeah. It hasn't happened yet. It's been more than a year. Yeah, one, one so word it's, there, lobbying. Yeah, exactly. This is so protectionism. This is the same, yeah. You know, if you want to go at that end the, uh, of the argument, it is, I think it's, it feels like protectionism. Having been on the receiving end of this, it's not fun. And I feel sorry for Norwegian. I really do. Yeah, because you had a, an ex- a personal experience with when you tried to create Virgin America. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's not a fun feeling. It's frustrating when you know you're bringing a superior product to the market. But I, I really hope that Norwegians stick through it. I hope they've got the pockets. Their pockets are deep enough to sustain this fight. And it's a good fight. They should continue it. Moving on, another protectionist market, North Korea. <laughs> Well, actually, yeah, I was going to talk about North Korea, but there's something else I found that actually I found, oh, sorry. I found this last night and it, it really concerned me. And I'd be interested to hear if you think that this is um, uh, real or if it's something we should genuinely be concerned about. It's about toxic fumes in, in cabins. Um, now, we, we all hear these, these Daily Mail news stories about we're going to get sick because they recycle the cabin air. Categorically not true. Uh, recycled air in, in airplane cabins is cleaner than it is in hospitals or as clean as it is in hospitals. There are so many studies to back that up. This is not what this is about. What this came from is a, uh, a coroner in, in the county of Dorset here in England that said that people who are regularly, frequently, i.e. cabin crew and, and very frequent flyers who are exposed to fumes that are circulating in the cabin can can be irreversibly damaged by it. 
and it's called aerotoxic syndrome. And what happens is in a normal plane, there's a system that compresses air from the engines, bleed air, and uses it to pressurize the cabin and to also regulate the temperature. If it malfunctions, and it can, what happens is oil particles start entering the air supply, and they're not always caught in the filters. But even if they are, prolonged exposure to them apparently with a, can have a cumulative effect on these frequent flyers. And this all came about because there was a, a senior first officer who died in 2012. Yeah, correct. And the claim was that he had been poisoned over time by these toxic cabin fumes. And this this coroner is absolutely adamant that this this killed him, that this was the root cause. And a, a number of other um, uh, people have come forward to say that this is this is true, and this has affected them, uh, their their flight deck crew, their their cabin crew. The government has said, and I quote, concerns about significant risk to the health of airline passengers and crew are not substantiated. Um, this is the CAA, which is the uh, the UK um, Civil Aviation Authority. So they have a vested interest in this not being the case. Um, and it is, again, quote, nothing that passengers or crew should be overly concerned about. Uh, what do you think about it? Do you think this is real? Do you think it's, it's, it's a one-off? Uh, it's very hard to have... Uh you know, well-informed opinion on this, because first of all, I'm not a doctor, not, not am I a chemist or, you know, so it's, uh, 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 there's a bit of fear mongering. Uh, I, I don't know if the airline is as, like you just mentioned, is as the, the air in an aircraft is safer than one from the hospital. Although, you know, I've had cases in my family of people where actually uh, got a, a nasty bug within an hospital and I never got a bug in a plane. So maybe, I don't know. But I think, I mean, it's very hard for me to take to have an informal opinion. I do not think that it is that dangerous. Otherwise, we would have heard much more about it, uh, and especially from pilots, because um, for the most exposed people in the industry, which should be the, the crew, the staff, uh, we haven't heard a lot about it. So I, I guess more studies will have to be to be made. I'm not saying I'm not discounting it completely as some crazy, you know, anti-science, you know discourse but i have my very big doubts. yeah I, I do too i think the number of studies that have come out about cabin air quality it feels like it should have put this to rest now i know what they're saying is that it's it's the cumulative effect as opposed to germs in the air or anything like that Yeah, correct yeah of course but you, you think you recall the number of studies that have come out about radiation exposure to frequent flyers and especially flight crew there have been so many studies about that that have proven that, yes, they are exposed to increased levels of radiation, that this hasn't been studied over and over again if it was really a legitimate concern. So I'm interested to see there's a lawsuit pending as a result of this. And apparently this lawyer represents 50 other uh, people from um, from cabin crews, Emirates, Cathay, Etihad, Thomas Cook, EasyJet, et cetera, et cetera. I will be interested to see if this even makes it to trial. Um what, what, what it could actually do, which would be the, the, the good side of, of this, it would actually lead to maybe better studies, not better, but maybe like to having it in the public eye will actually maybe force uh, a lot of new studies to be made, not at least counting any of the past studies that have been made about this. I think it's something that we should be informed about. Uh, maybe not us again, as even if we're freaking flyer, we're not as exposed as our you know, crew, uh, but I mean, I'm I'm open that there, you know, that we have a better uh, information about this. But honestly, again, 
I can ask my dad, he's a doctor, but besides that, yeah, it's very hard for me. The one thing, the one thing I would say, I know it's not enough, it's more light. Uh, having flown in, I know it's stupid comment here. I'm really sorry for that, guys. Having flown many times, obviously, and I, having been lucky to be in the front cabin, uh, so in premium, the premium part of the plane, I have in my many times in my life, and I want to ask you that to you, uh, Alex. I have a, a smell, uh, cigarette smoke, and not coming from the um, lavatories, obviously. In flight? No, it's forbidden. In flight. And I have two two pilots, friends of mine, who said that, yeah, occasionally we would actually have a smoke no. in the cockpit. And since the air is pushed back, because, you know, especially in term, in case of uh, a, um, a fire, et cetera, you know, the cockpit has to be extremely safe. Right. They, they, you would actually feel, you know, a slight, I mean, nothing disturbing, and you have to be very, very close to the cockpit. But wow. I would—I don't know—I don't know if that's true or not. I know it's supposedly forbidden, but I would understand, especially for the maybe older pilots that are still smoking. Maybe you know they said, you know what? I'd rather have a quiet, like a calm pilot than somebody that has to go without a. Smoke All right. Well, hours. okay. I don't know if there's any pilots out there listening that can confirm or deny this rumor. Yes. Hit <laughs> us up because that's a good one. Uh any, anything you wanted to no, add about no, I, this? No, I'm um, just interested to see if this if this trial actually happens. I'm skeptical, but you know it's a health thing, and and I'm I welcome any investigations into anything that can improve in flight health. So talking about in flight health, uh, you people that listen to us realize that I just skipped a bit here because Alex changed the order because that's how we work. We have a we have an Excel spreadsheet basically on Google Docs and we go over all the topics we're going to sing and now of course of course didn't catch that he had added this topic here instead of later so my bad I apologize for that. I still want to I still want to hear you even if it's like 30 seconds about that Air Force One from North Korea because I think I love that story. Yeah, okay, so <laughs> some pictures uh, emerged last week I think it was on uh the Jal- Jalopnik's uh aviation site which is great by the way we'll post a link to it and uh, it was pictures of this newly quote quote unquote newly refurbished north korean air force one and it looks well it's i'm sure you can picture it it was tacky and gaudy and awful and you know not an emirates business class seat was way way nicer than this than this plane (laughs) and it's sort of it did uh it did a, a bunch of um flights over Pyongyang kind of showing off to the people that, that this is what uh the I, I'm wondering had. if it would I would I'm wondering if it would ever be flying elsewhere because we know that North Korea is on the no fly list in the US. The EU uh blacklist is actually including uh, North Korea except from uh the Tupolev, the two oh four I think, from Air Koryo, so from the uh national the flag carrier. So I'm wondering if this this Actually, jet will be ever be able to fly anywhere. Well, it's an interesting question. It was it's a it's an Aleutian sixty two, and it's uh, been repainted. But Kim Jong Il, the, the the former leader, was terrified of flying. Yeah, he would. He would the take train the train, everywhere. so he would take the train all the way to Moscow if necessary. So perhaps I don't know if we'll see it in the skies, um, but it, it's it's pretty awful. <laughs> Anyway, we'll put the link at the show. Uh, moving on, because we have to mention this this uh, aircraft every week. So the A380, I had mentioned, I think it was two episodes ago, that Turkish was uh, rumored to be interested in A380. Uh, and actually, it might actually happen because, uh, you know, the Malaysia, Malaysia Airlines has been having a very bad year. Uh, so they need less capacity. They have uh, six A380s. 
but they don't no longer leave the capacity. So in terms of right size their fleet, they might actually wet lease uh, two of them to Turkish. So Turkish will actually introduce A380s probably to the Istanbul to London routes. It's not sure yet. Uh, it's an interesting uh, way of testing actually uh, an aircraft. I think. Turkish did the same when they first tried a 777. Instead of going for orders first, they said, oh, let's just wet lease a few, see if that fits in our model, and then you know maybe order more. What do you think? It's yeah, it's a good way to test the the market. If anyone can make it work, it's Turkish. That, you know, talk about a hub and spoke uh, or or hub model airline that runs everything through Istanbul and is positioning itself as a premium carrier, not just in that market, but but globally. I think it makes a lot of sense. Malaysian have a new CEO coming on board, the former CEO of Aer Lingus. So it'll be interesting to see what changes, what long-term changes that he has in mind. For the- I think I think he might actually like that plan because uh, uh, Christoph Müller is the name of the, the CEO. Uh, and I think he will enter, I think his contract with Aer Lingus uh, is finishing in April. Yes, they May. accelerated uh, it because Malaysian were desperate to have him on board quickly for for obvious reasons. But if you look at the job that it did at Erlingus, it was basically kind of, you know, rebuild the airline and make it something. And I think it would actually maybe welcome at, from the Air, Malaysian Airlines point of view to say, okay, we have these six massive jets. We don't know what to do with them. Just wet lease them, you know, to have extra revenue and to actually focus on, you know, on the core business for a little while. And I think that actually works for him too. I mean, we'll see if he changes course when he comes in, but I think he would actually like that. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I think it'll be interesting to see what he would, what they end up doing with them. And if they don't put in an order, I mean, God knows there's, there's available A380s and Airbus is looking to get rid of them. You know, the Skymark ones that we've talked about, but uh, yeah, Airbus must be happy. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a good, exactly. it's, a, it's a good move for them long-term or short-term. Talking about long, the longest. Uh, the, so you want to go? Yeah. Ahead, so this is longest. an interesting one. So so there was an announcement uh, a couple of days ago that Gulfstream, the corporate jet manufacturer, had broken around the world record, uh, and they've flown this G three six six fifty ER, which is ex- extended range. Uh, it flew around the world in one stop with one fuel stop. So from New York to Beijing to Savannah, Georgia, uh, at the the again Jalopnik referred to it as one ass numbing flight, which is <laughs> which is absolutely true. Now a lot of people are debating whether or not this was a world record because they did the polar route, the Great Circle route. But what's really interesting here is the speed that they were able to maintain an average speed of 0.87 Mach for 13 hours and 20 minutes is extraordinary much faster than a commercial flight and they did they they that airplane had broken previous records they'd done LA to Melbourne in 14 hours and 58 minutes which is substantially quicker than a a, a, nor, a normal commercial airliner could do no matter how you cut this the plane is extraordinary the performance is extraordinary and they're really pushing the envelope for that optimization of speed and range where in the past, it's you sacrifice a little bit of speed to get from point A to point B. It's just going to take you a little bit longer. These guys are pushing to get further, faster, which is is always a good thing. You should uh, – so people are interested in these type of records. You can go to uh, FII.org, so the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale. I can use my French again. <laughs> and uh, I, the website is just like – loads of records in there because all the records are divided by type of plane, type of aircraft, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, You just mentioned the um, uh, commercial uh, uh, aircraft. And I think 
their record is held by uh, 777 200 uh, long range, uh, which I think did uh, Ethrow to Hong Kong, I think it's 2005. There's other records uh, depending on the weight. Uh, so you'll have uh, the 787 has its own record as well because it's a lighter jet, et cetera, et cetera. So if you like these type of records, you can take a look. That's uh, the the website has a lot of these crazy records. It's, it's interesting to take. It really a look. is. It really is. Just before we move on, I, I, some breaking news, live breaking news. I just got an alert that an American Airlines flight from Zurich to New York is squawking seventy seven hundred, which means they've set the transponder Oops. code to seven 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 zero zero, which is the international standard for an emergency, and it's diverting to Heathrow now. The transponder data was sh- showed that it landed, but it landed on the M4 motorway. It no, what? thankfully, and it was an <laughs> old transponder which was putting out bad data. It has landed safely at Heathrow. Um, oh, dear God. But I, I flight radar twenty four. It's a great Twitter account if you're not following it. Got to actually clarified saying it's landed safely at Heathrow. It did not land on the M4. It's old trans. It's an old transponder submit uh, transmitting bad data. So there you go. Wow, Our first would, piece of live news. <laughs> that would have been quite oh, something to have a, such a plane landing on the M4. Oh wow. Oh god. Uh, what a yeah. Uh, not live. Another piece of news that is, goes again with these stories of competition of new business models is the. Lufthansa. So Lufthansa has been, you know, it's a very large uh, uh, career, obviously, uh, flag career. It's been there for a long time. We mentioned last week that it's been there. They, they, they're celebrating the 50th anniversary of post-war operations. But they're having, like a lot of the other, um, you know, traditional airlines, uh, they're, having, they're suffering from the competition of both, on one side, the low-cost carriers in Europe, so the Ryanair and the EasyJets Easy in Europe, and the Gulf Airlines, which we mentioned uh, earlier and we're going to mention later on. The thing that was interesting that grabbed my attention this week, there was an article that said, so uh, before I go there, so Lufthansa has set up two no less than two different low-cost structure. One is German wings, and the the other is Euro wings. Uh, maybe we go once to a segment explaining how this all worked, because it was the first attempt, and then now they're doing a second attempt. The interesting tidbit that I that the article is said that the um, Euro wings has uh, an operating cost forty percent less than Lufthansa. So you you can see the struggle here. You can suddenly realize why you know they're having forty percent is a lot, a lot, a lot of money that comes, of course, labor costs, etc. And this is why, and Alex and I have been in the middle of that. This is why actually Lufthansa uh, staff went on strike many times last week, uh, last year. I think more than ten times. You and me remember we well, suffered yeah, we we had to change planes. Yeah. So this is forty percent. It's, ex- it's you know, extraordinary, wow. and I think. There's also a brand perception thing there, isn't there? Because this is a trend among big established flag carriers to establish small, low-cost carriers because there is a built-in brand perception that flag carrier equals more expensive than a low-cost carrier, and they can't seem to change right. the mind. So uh, Lufthansa have obviously done it, as you mentioned. Air France have done it. I think it's called Hop or something like that. Uh, there's Transavia. I there's, don't know. Yeah, there's uh, a small there's... domestic one as well. That uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, Hop is the Singapore name, Airlines have done it with Scoot. So it's an interesting strategy, but 40% is, an ex- is a staggering number. And apparently it's also uh, the, the same. I think I don't know if it's the same article or another because I've read a few about it. They've also said that uh, the old price structure is 30% 
more expensive. Lufthansa is 30% more expensive than Turkish, which is another national carrier. Wow. So you, then you can see the labor costs included. This is why we got some strikes yeah. because Lufthansa is, is, is negotiating new deals with pilots for Eurowings, which is, is basically the one is that's the low-cost structure it wants to actually now uh, focus on because German Wings was not that successful. Uh, so they want to focus on the Eurowings and they actually want to create so a different uh, price structure, different, obviously, uh, negotiation with unions, different pay lines, et cetera, et cetera, because of this number. It's, uh, they have no choice. Actually, uh, Lufthansa now, in basically in Germany, Fly, they basically want to keep, like you just mentioned, that premium uh, feel. They want to basically, if that will be the premium product and will basically for, fly most of their flights from Munich and Frankfurt. And that's it. The rest, the remainder of the, the airports in Germany will be catered to by the low cost structure. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, then, oh, yeah. Same, because in the same breath, uh, there was the European Commission, uh, European Social Dialogue Committee. So it's one of the body from the European uh, Commission, the European Union here in Europe. Uh, so basically put out a report that says that the old LCC model is uh, obviously disruptive, but also disruptive for the conditions of work for both the staff, the, but especially the pilots, uh, with a zero-hour contract. Do you, you know what a zero-hour contract yeah, is? Yeah, there's been a lot of debate about those here in the UK and the, the, the legality of them. And it's it's become a talking point for the uh, upcoming general election here in the UK. And uh, you can still... Uh, uh, Ryanair said that its labor cost was basically six euros per available seat mile Whereas if you compare that to the U.S., for the, our listeners in the U.S., uh, Spirit Airline is 19 euros. Wow. And Southwest is 35 euros. Wow. Yeah, you can see how disruptive these LCCs are. And obviously that creates the questions, and you mentioned that last week when we talked about Erlingus, about, you know, there's still a reason, there's a, a clear reason why we have a debate about what are the working conditions of both pilots and crew because we're going into maybe something that is so anyway the, i'll put the link on the report it's very that's part again of this debate of you know the gulf airlines because they also have a, a lower cost structure in terms of labor cost this whole thing is actually happening everywhere mm. and we're right in the middle of that of that disruption but in the middle of the disruption a good news for you virgin america yes I, this is a totally self-indulgent news piece, but I'm going to roll with it because I'm I'm proud of it. It makes me happy. So Virgin America just posted their uh, earnings, and they've they've had their second consecutive full year of net profit, which Woo. is amazing. After five years of losses, you know it, it's quite expensive to build an airline. I don't know how many of you have done it, but <laughs> it's it's not a a cheap hobby. It's like golf. So it to see that they've they're hitting profitability for the second year in a row is really encouraging. The numbers look good post IPO. That IPO gave them a lot of cash to play with for expansion, for fleet uh, fleet acquisition and upgrade. In a in a low oil cost economy, it's looking good. It's and no, bravo. Honestly bravo because it seemed it seemed that Virgin America was always getting that paradox. Everybody said high praise it's a great airline but he wasn't able to make any money i mean not any money but he was losing money so this finally two years in a row means you kind of broke that parallax yes and you're growing great. capacity which means that number is going to keep going up and up you know all, all, all being well for honestly for a few years maybe not just consecutive quarters it looked bad 
it was hemorrhaging yeah. cash and there wasn't any sign of light and there was you know we're looking at 120 dollar uh, a barrel oil and i even i have my doubts that, that our little baby was going to pull through but look where she is it's it's going great and i'm very proud of it and i i think that everybody that works there should be proud and i'm 150,000 percent biased Yes. So don't even <laughs> don't even write in and tell us we are. I am. <laughs> <laughs> but though I, I read some pieces because I went to look for information and it says that Virgin America you, you basically generates higher average fares and higher revenue per seat mile that on both long haul and, and short haul than most of the other airlines, including some of the low cost. It's actually a model that seems to be working. I guess one of the reasons there was no profitability was probably because there was a rapid delivery of new aircraft. You kept getting new yes. aircraft. I mean, say you, sorry, you're no longer part of it, but you still have your heart there. And also adding new destinations. I mean, you, that was the kind of growth period that was very quick and it was not able to, but the model seems to be working. There was another article of, uh, I read, sorry, that said that on the transatlantic routes, uh, the, the again, the average fare and the revenue per mile is higher than AADL uh, United Con uh, Continental. So it's good. It's well good. Long. I mean, they're picking some big fights, uh, you know, going out of Dallas. And now they're announcing Dallas versus Dallas Austin, which is putting them up right up against Southwest, who are the kings of profitability uh, on route. So they're picking big fights, but they're going where the people are. So I'm, 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 I'm excited and quietly hopeful for the future. So now I have to fly them once I've never. Yeah, you Sorry. really do. I think you should. I think you'll get a kick out of it. <laughs> a moving, a moving from Virgin to Delta. Gosh, this is a. Uh, so yes. I must be. I'm the king of lighthearted stories because this is, this is pretty funny. There was recently the very um, prestigious Westminster Dog Show in the U.S. and apparently, Delta misplaced some of these prize-winning dogs, and their owners were furious. They should have been – the passengers were sitting on the plane looking out and wa watching for their dogs to be loaded into the uh, into the cargo hold, the climate-controlled cargo hold. And they didn't see them and they didn't see them and they didn't see them. So one – I love this part. One of them pulled out his Fly Delta app, yeah. <laughs> which allows passengers to track the location of their tagged luggage. And even though the flight crew were saying, yeah, they're on board, he's like, look at the app. They're not on board. <laughs> I can prove it. They're not on board. And sure enough, they weren't on board. They had to wait four hours for Delta to find these these dogs. Yeah, no, Delta had no idea. They had where they no were idea where these dogs were. Uh, so they they off you know, the passengers got off and they gave them the option to fly on while they looked for their dogs or wait until their dogs were found. And of course, they waited. Yeah, right. I mean, this is insane. And there was a there was a a, a statement by. Delta that said uh, they were in our constant care the whole time, which is okay, which is yeah. questionable. But there's a there was an industry analyst who said pets go missing a lot more than airlines like to admit, and he he suggested if you're considering traveling with your pets that you should fly on the same plane as them, be it in the in the in the hold. I mean, you don't get to go in the hold. It would be kind of fun, but you don't get to go in the hold, and it is <laughs> much. Uh, it's worth paying the extra for a nonstop flight if you're traveling with an animal. So um, I, I I don't know what is your idea of fun. I don't know if I would be in that climate control. Old. But as a pet owner, I did transfer pets uh, with British Airways. Everything went fine. It's 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 stressful because, you know, you suddenly put them in a and cage. Expensive. And expensive. You know, 
Oh yeah, that's expensive. But you don't know. I mean, I I went many times to the pilot and say, "Are you sure you actually put the eater on, on in that little climate control part of the cargo? Because if these are no pets. They don't have to, right? So it, it's a stressful predicament for a, for a long time. You don't know where they are. I had no app to be able to track them. Uh, a bit of a more sad part of uh, in, 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 for pets, uh, and I want to mention them. And I'm sorry because I'm going to bash two airlines here. Delta had a record of uh, pets who died uh, during transport between 2010 and 2013. And in 2014, that crown was taken by United. The numbers are not staggering. Do not think that, you know, like a thousands, thousands of pets are, are, are dying every year. But still, you know, it's something that you have to be careful about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's well worth doing your research about the carrier before you put your pet on them. Exactly. Uh, last piece of news, a bit, a bit fast, uh, because otherwise we can, can go on for hours, all the news we're reading. Uh, interestingly, uh, Russia, uh, so the Russian airspace will now require airlines to actually uh, share the API, so the passenger information. Uh, many other um, spaces are doing that, US obviously, but that's quite an impact because a lot of the flights uh, leaving from Europe to, to Asia, especially uh, Japan, for instance, of Korea, are going through uh, Russian airspace and then, you know, passengers details will have to be shared with the Russian authorities. I'm sure this is actually part of the entire, you know, current uh, war is too big a word because we're not in a war, but kind of very uh, uh, leading to conflict type of uh, environment we, we're having. But this is something that is new and a lot of people are a bit worried. Yeah, about. it's it's clearly posturing and another sort of Cold War-ish tactic. But yeah. as somebody pointed out in this thread, the U.S. already does the same thing. And I think no one could blame Russia for requesting the same level of information as the U.S. has demanded for nearly 10 years. But it's clearly a politically motivated <laughs> motivated move. It is. Uh, moving on to innovation, the innovation part of the show. First, uh, so Air France is having a little game you can play on iOS and Android, an iPhone or your Android phone. Before you go, uh, you wait at the gate, you're an economy, you can play a game, you win uh, basically uh, two, two uh, upgrades for business class. The thing is, usually these things are made because Alex and I, we both know a little bit of the advertising industry. You see a lot of these small initiatives that are made. And basically the reason they're made is because you create a great video, creates great awareness, and then you go on to win an award at Lyons, so the Cannes Award for Advertising, and meaning there are no real impact at the end of the process. I would say that the interesting tidbit here, so at the very beginning, this initiative was limited to a single airport. So you see it was not that many people would actually win. But Air France has expanded uh, this uh, this game, so the availability of the game to other airports, whether it's in China, Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia, Japan. You can download the game, compete with other passengers, and win upgrades. What I love think? it. I love this idea. I think it's fantastic. As long as it's real and that you can actually some, – somebody wins every flight. Um, yeah, it wins. You go, you go on the website and you see the name uh, because obviously people usually log in with their a nickname. So uh, the, the, maybe the airline is not able to know exactly who you are. But there's a page on Air France uh, official website and it says, okay, these are the two upgrades uh, that the two people that want the upgrades and they just say, you know, the random Alex 007 or something. But and then, you know, they can actually claim your price. So they, it actually works. It's, it's a fun way. I mean, it's not going to 
revolutionize effort. I know it's a nice idea. I'd love to know how many flights, how many games they play per day and how many upgrades they give and things like that. But what a a nice idea to to really make someone's day. It could make their entire year if this is the once of a lifetime journey and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're upgraded or it's your honeymoon or something. I think it's a lovely idea. Why not? Why not? I, yeah, I think so too. And I think we, we we should have at some point maybe a segment on our upgrades because a lot of airlines have, in, have started introducing a system of bidding uh, to upgrade yourself on flights. It's, a, it's an interesting innovation as yes, well. Yes, I think I agree. Uh, there's there's definitely a, an entire show on, on how to get upgraded and how not to get upgraded. Let's do that. So from being upgraded to getting Yeah, drunk. so this is slightly <laughs> tangential to, the, to aviation strictly, but it was such a great story that I wanted to share it. So there is a device called a breathometer that is you connect it to your smartphone and it calculates your blood alcohol level. You you blow into this tube or whistle kind of thing uh, and it shares your blood alcohol level and shows you how long it's going to take you to based on some some very uh, other stats of how long it will be you'll be safe again. But which is interesting in itself. I'm hugely for anything that that prevents drunk driving and responsible drinking, but they have they've now integrated it with Uber. So if you blow into this thing and you're above the, the safe drink dri- the safe driving level and wh- wherever you are, it will go, "Hey, you should not be driving. Here are a bunch of options including uh, an an Uber car and it can be here in 3 minutes and will cost you X to get home." Which is really clever and they have things like call a cab, Uber, uh, find something to eat, grab a room, things like that. So they really want people to to make good choices when they have maybe had a one too many drinks and using data and existing infrastructure like Uber and things like that is, is a, is a really nice idea. Uh, in terms of, in terms of, if I, if I go back to, to, to airlines, have you, I don't know if you've seen, but there's been a call uh, recently in the, here in the UK to maybe even ban alcohol from airports uh, because there's been a rise of drunken behavior in flight, uh, so you can have dry flights, but there's been calls to actually ban alcohol from the uh, airports in the UK. Uh, I'll find the article again. I think it was some somebody shared it last week, but that's still, you know, that can be a problem. Sometimes. It absolutely can. I think people underestimate the effects uh, that altitude has on the body when it processes alcohol. And it doesn't matter if you drink on board or if you drink it pre-flight, it still compounds and magnifies the effects pretty, the negative effects pretty considerably, uh, including dehydration. It's it's a great way to have bad jet lag. Um, I'd be I'd be interested to read that article. I, I I'm always amazed when I go into a British airport at six thirty in the morning and people are drinking oh, yeah. like it's six thirty at I night. Mean, for me, I can't do you that. Moving, moving, move, moving to the UK and starting to fly from here, I was like, "What is going on?" Like in gin and tonic, like at eight can't in the morning. It. I'm like, can't "No way." <laughs> oh, but anyway, uh, for, talking about liquor, I remember having a very—I don't even remember the name uh, of a liquor on China Eastern. So I flew China Eastern a few years ago. Uh, from I think it was from Shanghai to Japan, but I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, what I remember though it was that it was a very difficult uh, flight in terms of um, communication. I couldn't actually communicate very easily with the staff again because mostly it was almost like an inland flight. Uh, so China, China Eastern has introduced a kind of a series now a game. So basically, 
uh, what you can do is with your phone, uh, you follow an account and you can start asking uh, stuff to your, so it's like a personal assistant asking like a, from water to anything to the crew via an app on your phone. <laughs> what Do you think that you would actually use an app like this instead of just pressing the cold button? No. <laughs> I think that it's you, you have to entirely change the culture of the cabin crew to to do that who have for 40 or 50 years they have uh indicators in the in, in the areas wh where they are, are based to show if somebody's pressed one of those buttons and they respond to it um sooner or later. I no I I would use this. Why why would you complicate the process? Well, so the Obviously, this can do a lot of other things because it's uh, it's like, again, you can talk to other passengers. It's not limited, to, by the way, to China Eastern because it's something you can follow on Weibo, which ah. is a big uh, social network in China. But China Eastern has dedicated a channel for interaction with the crew. I'm not sure if it's something that will be actually widely no, used or not, but it'd be interesting to see uh, if it follows. Like a... uh, keeping up on the... Uh, Having some kind of assistant, uh, Honeywell Air Aerospace as, uh, is testing voice control within the flight deck. So wow. uh, they've been testing that with an Embraer. Uh, so basic, basically, you have a, a tablet. The pilots have a tablet. And instead of putting commands with the hand, they can actually press exactly what you would do on your iPhone. You press first on a button that activates Siri, and then you would say give flight commands. What wow, do you think? that's neat. I think if it frees up hands and eyes, why not? That's exactly what the pilots actually said, because a lot of pilots were a bit concerned, like, yeah, right, I'm never going to use this. And then they said, this is the biggest thing, is not to have to look down and being able to simply actually order yeah. commands. The problem is obviously still noise and accents, because mm. uh, some accents are not easily understood. Uh, but I think it's, a, it's an interesting innovation that, that is uh, Yeah, going. if you're a pilot, would write in and tell us what you think. Uh, moving, uh, keeping innovation like 3D printing. Yeah, this is really interesting. That's... So Rolls-Royce are going to fly a Trent XWB engine, which is the engine for the A350-1000 with the largest ever 3D printed part. This is staggering. It's 1.5 meters diameter and a half a meter thick, completely titanium, but printed um, this isn't going to be this is this component itself isn't going to be printed for the production models yet, but the fact that they can design prototype and then and now actually fly something as big and complex as this, which which is the front engine bearing and holds forty eight of the of the aerofoils that are that make up the, the the turbine is is really amazing, and they they reckon that if they're able to turn this into something they use every day, it could trim the time and uh, uh, for like for like for like manufacturing time by 30%. So pretty, pretty amazing innovation. Yeah. And you could also have, instead of manufacturing a single place, you could have other places. Just yeah, you just send them the machine. file. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The blueprint. That's, that's an interesting innovation. I, I agree. I think it's something would be followed. They announced it, I think already last year, but it's, it's amazing. I think GE is, do is doing. GE, something yeah. And it, well. they've been doing stuff like this for five years, but, but never at the, at the scale, nor for an operational component uh, of this magnitude. Moving on to another aircraft we always mention, this show, the 747. So ANA has stopped flying the 747-400 with their last uh, uh, plane, uh, last 747, last uh, March. But, I mean, Japan has always been, Japanese have always been amazing at, you know, 
all the memorabilia they will uh, sell you uh, on, on top of their branding. And they have this website where you can buy a lot of stuff related to flying, to ANA, the brand, etc. And what they've done, that last aircraft that was decommissioned, they've actually taken parts of it and you actually buy them. Oh my so gosh, you can buy... this is going to be expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually not. There's a keychain. Uh, you have part of a window, basically, uh, with as a, something actually printed on it. You can have also something, a similar piece that it looks like a tail of the 747 you can put on your desk, also part of the window. These are actually not very expensive. Uh, but then you can actually part buy uh, part of the exhaust turbine. Wow. Uh, uh, and that's really expensive. It comes in a very nicely wooden box, etc. But the most interesting part, you can actually buy a premium seat. So the first class seat that was in the top deck, you, you have to go through a lottery because there's so much demand. These are very expensive. You can buy either a single seat. They're not the new fancy seats. You know, they're still angle and everything. We could have a single seat or a double. Yeah, wow. I've always so- wanted to do that. I think that would be cool. <laughs> The reason I mentioned that, guys, if you want to do it first, you have obviously to read Japanese. I'll put the link. So find someone in Japan because you can only buy with a credit card in Japan. You have to be ANA My Club member. So there's a lot of stuff here. And it's a lottery to win the, to win the seat. But if you want to try, you should actually try. In shorter news, uh, very quickly, I've heard a show talking about other podcasts because there are other podcasts available than us. I've heard, uh, I don't know if you know this, uh, Omega Tau. It's a podcast about science and engineering. And they've done an episode two hours about a concord oh, fantastic with an ex an ex pilot called uh john hutchinson it's amazing it's there's i was just going to tell one story so that gives you like a teaser he explains how you know it was very difficult to uh to the concord in terms of fuel consumption to be in a holding pattern it had to you know land very quickly and jfk uh, atc became so in love with that plane that when there was this thing happened at some moment they actually find a way to put the concord on a separate uh, frequency so nobody else could no other pilot can hear and it would prioritize the plane over the other ones without anyone else wow. knowing stuff like that yeah <laughs> it's a great episode i'll put the link you should absolutely listen to it uh app of the week yes yeah, so i i love this site it's openflights.org and it is a flight tracking app personal flight tracking app so you can import or enter all of the flights that you've taken uh, and it will it, it arranges them in this beautiful map so you can see where you've been you can list your flights by by year by by airport and it gives you these wonderful stats at the end of it you can analyze it and it will show you you know that for this for 2014 I'm just looking at my stats uh so far it's like you know how far have you gone what was the longest trip what was the shortest trip um the the northernmost southernmost westernmost what classes airports things like that and it can import from like tripit so you don't have to type in manually everything and it will you just sync with your tripit account and it will pull in all of the information for you so uh, otherwise I have to admit it does get a little bit tedious to, <laughs> to list all of your flights, yeah. but like, so if I analyze all my, my stuff for the last 277,000 miles of flights, my longest journey was Heathrow to Singapore, 6,758 miles. My shortest was Tallinn to Helsinki at 62 miles. Uh, I've flown around the world 11.13 times to the moon 1.16 times. So it's a lovely, <laughs> lovely stuff, you know? I've flown to Mars 0.00080 times. 
but like the number of unique airports you've been to. It's a, I think it's a community-driven site, but it- yeah, it's 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 open source, which has the uh, the great thing about it is not only you can like you just said you can import uh, from existing closed source because Tripit is basically a bit closed source, but then you can do whatever with your data. I've actually seen people actually exporting the data and creating crazy vis- visualizations of their flights using Tableau software or other type of software. So you can do pretty much, you're free to do whatever you want. So if you want to play a little bit with it, if you know how to, you can create amazing you know, images of what has been your life traveling and flying the skies. And so, and I think it's, it, it's uh, I think they, they work by donations and I think it's probably worth giving a donation. If you use it like reasonably because, regularly, yeah, I think yeah. it's, it's a great app. Like, you know, you can look at your your most used airlines of your life and things like that. I just I like things like this because it's personal. The map is great. As every at the end of every calendar year, I write a blog post on my site that's my year in cities. Yeah, yeah, true. And I I always use this site for the data, and it's just a joy to play with. And it's really, really it's not to be fair, they're not the most beautiful site in the world, but functionally, it is a joy. It really is. So, how, you know, log in, import if you use Tripit, which you really should be using Tripit. Uh, import all your stuff from there because it's it's a neat little site. It's fun to play with. Yes, it is. Uh, I've to be very honest, I've only put part of my flights, and I'll I'll play with. Well, the cool thing is, more. you just log into Trip, import all, bam, you're done. Yeah, but I missed some flights. Oh. Trip, so that's the reason I have to go back in time. And I was say I was going to do it one day, and I've never had the time to do it. Uh, but it would show actually if I if I go to 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 this to my flights, it would show that since. 2010. I've been flying a lot of Gulf Airlines. This is our topic of the show of the week. Uh, is this you know we just mentioned the the big debate that is raging uh, in the beginning of the show, and we wanted Alex and me wanted to take a look a little bit at you know the inception. Why is all this debate going, and where these uh, three airlines uh, are coming from? Because when we say Gulf Airlines, the debate is always centralized on three: Emirates, Qatar Airways, and Etihad. Want to start with? Yeah, I. This is such an interesting topic, and I think it's it's so present in the news at the moment, obviously, as it's come up in every single episode, I think, since the beginning of this podcast, all those weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right. So those I, we need to mention that those three are not the only three Middle Eastern carriers. They're, they exactly. are all extremely young. Uh, Emirates was, was founded only in 1985. But there has been there's Saudi, as you mentioned earlier in the show, Gulf Air, Oman Air. There's loads. Each care, Yemeni, Kuwait. Kuwait yeah. uh, some have come and gone. Some have gone, come and gone and come back again, um, for various reasons. But these ones are the ones that have shown the most meteoric growth from literally nothing to extraordinary behemoths of the airline world. And so, let's so- if we take the story of Emirates. So Emirates was started. In '85, uh, by one of the crown princes, and but interestingly, sorry no. to interrupt there. Interesting, the reason it was created because this is also something most because of the current debate of the ME3. This is how people call it: your ME3, Middle East, and the three big ones of the Middle East. A lot of people think that they were created just to actually disrupt everything. No, Emirates was created because Gulf Air, which is from Bahrain, was cutting back on its routes from Dubai. And they were like, we need to have routes from Dubai from here because we live in the middle of, of the, this peninsula and we need to have flights. Thus, they give some money to, I think it was wet leasing two, two aircraft from Pakistan. Yeah, so, uh, or something. they leased one plane from, from PIA. And one, and they had a do- <laughs> This is I love this. They had a donated seven to twenty-seven from the family's private fleet. 
I know, uh-huh. as one does. Uh, and then he, his uncle was tasked with running it for a while. Uh, and he, they hired an ex-British uh, aviation consultant. They had 10 million bucks to play with. Uh, and of course, that was a pretty good investment because look where they are now. And the, the first flight uh, was, was Bahrain to Karachi in 1985. And five years later, they were doing 21 cities in big cities, Frankfurt, London, Singapore. And then next year, they gave 65 million bucks and then 58 million, 58 new airplanes. They, they, when September 11th happened, the market fell out of air, airplanes for obvious reasons. So they snapped up 58 new airplanes and became and started the, the A380 thing. So it, in terms of aviation history, their growth has been exponential. It has really been extraordinary. But they've really been in, in the picture in the past, let's say, five years. Not that they haven't been before, but the current what we see that the current product, the quality of the product. So the uh, some people might find it tacky because of the colors, but the quality of the product. I remember f- I flew the first time Emirates in 2010, I believe. Uh, that was not my first experience with uh, Gulf Airline because that was Etihad. Actually, I'll come to that story later. But I remember that uh, you know that that. Even the um, uh, the business uh, section was not that fancy business section we see here. I had flown from Manila to Dubai, and it was still very old uh, angle seats. So let's again. I want to people to understand that it was uh, progressive. It went very fast, but that it was not since inception. There were these crazy, crazy that's planes a, with like old. That's luxury. an extremely good point. They started all three of them started as very modest airlines. And I think it's a question of of right time, but also, I think more importantly, right place. Yeah, I think this is one of the key things that people do not understand. And go with it, but look at a yeah, map. Yeah, look at and exactly look at a map. The Dubai and Abu Dhabi and and Doha are in a geographic sweet spot. Uh, there are the most. They sit up across the, this path linking Europe and Asia. And this, this statistic is staggering. Two-thirds of the world's population live within an eight-hour flight of those three cities. And nearly 90% of humanity resides within the range of an A380 or 777 departing from the Gulf. Yeah, and, and the thing is also with, with economics of a flight, the, the, that eight-hour range you just mentioned is perfect. Uh, I mean, uh, it, there's a sweet spot also in terms of long-haul flights. Having six, seven, eight hours is a great spot to make money out of long-haul flights. So this is something, like you said, it's just they just happen to be right in this middle. It makes more sense to a lot of people, even from the... The U.S. is actually basically, uh, in terms of geography, in terms of hub, it's completely oh, yeah, out it's, there. It doesn't make any th- sense unless you live yeah, in the U.S. It makes no in, sense. As a, as a layover market, there's none. There's no sense. Even Euro, even Europe compared to even Europe compared to the Middle East, if you're flying again from the US, it makes actually more sense again geographically to stop over in the Middle East, rather, or even Turkey, because this is why uh, Turkish is m- making this big deal. But this is so. This, there's a geography. Uh, there's just a, a lucky being there. Just makes a lot of sense geographically, and I, th- I think this is something that a lot of people uh, do not understand, especially now you see a lot of the complaints that are made about these three airlines, and we'll go over the the next two uh, a bit later, is that, oh, but you know what? 
most of the airlines until now had a big, the, their market was local people. So Americans fly from the US externally and they come back. So the, the, the flag airlines were created to cater for local people. And it's true that the model there is opposite. It's not OND, it's, it's a transit system. You put people that stop over in Dubai or Doha or et cetera, and they keep, up, they keep on flying. This, yeah, this is, this is true, but it's, not, it's certainly not unique. I mean, Hong Kong and Singapore have very, very small- Correct. Um, very small populations, but it's the same thing. It's they were built on this transit model to, for all intents and purposes. They are, are also established financial capitals, but uh, they are not. Again, it's the same with the U.S. Their geography is not perfect. They're very southeast, and it used to be that if you wanted to get to, you know, from San Francisco or New York to India, you would go Singapore, you know, San Francisco, Hong Kong. To, to India or San Francisco, Frankfurt. And these are these are inefficient ways, but with this sort of nexus of efficiency and range of aircraft and uh, comfort levels for long haul flight and range and speed and ge- geography, uh, it makes total sense to fly in and out of the Middle East, no matter where you're going. It's, it's, it's such a perfect <laughs> storm in a positive way for those guys. <laughs> The, the other thing that is interesting in this story is that we, so we tend to put these three together, uh, but actually these three are not exactly similar. I mean, of course, you just mentioned Emirates now has become a behemoth. Yeah? It's the largest operator of A380, the largest operator of 777. So it's like a huge airline. I think it's now the fourth largest airline in the world uh, in terms, whether it, was it in terms of passengers, um, uh, kilometer, kilometer? Uh, revenue, revenue passenger miles, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's not a flag carrier. I mean, Qatar Airways and Etihad are flag carrier. Actually, Etihad, and maybe we can mention this one as a second one. Etihad was uh, developed later than Emirates. Uh, I think it was created around uh, the early this century, so 2003, mm, was something it? Something like that. Uh, but it was this one is government owned. This one is the flag carrier of the UAE, so of the United uh, Emirates, uh, in, in whereas Emirates, the airline, is a private airline that obviously is also has, because this is another contentious issue. Some people say, yeah, but there's collusion, etc. But one airline is a flag carrier, one isn't. So do you want to go over the model for it? Yeah, it is much smaller. Yeah, right? it, is, it is smaller, but it is in many ways the same model. It's efficient, long-haul airplanes doing a transit or layover model with extremely high-level, pre- even more premium facilities and, and amenities than Emirates. Uh, yeah. They know that they're, that they're, but here's the interesting thing. All three of them recognize that the, that the, the gold, uh, if you will, is in those Southeast Asian routes, which is interesting to me. Correct. That's not what I would have thought, but they are going hard after the Southeast Asian routes. And because that's, I think where the traditional stopover points were in, you know, sort of, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, places like that. So they have just, they've thrown so much capacity at the Gulf to Southeast Asians routes. For example, capacity between Thailand and the Gulf states has increased 80% in one year. But the, capa- the, the, the capacity to Europe has only grown 4%. But 
Thai Airways is only 5% of those seats and the the three Middle Eastern carriers take up the lion's share of the rest. That's a, that's a financialist.com statistic, which is amazing. Yeah, in the, in the same article, in the same article, he mentions how uh, Singapore uh, Airlines, you mentioned Singapore, share of traffic to and back uh, to and from the Middle East has shrunk 55% since 2009 and even and 50% more in 2013. So most... These are the ones who are suffering the most. We keep hearing, obviously, about U.S. airlines and Lufthansa and Air France KLM. But, I mean, these airlines are also suffering a lot. And if you've built your entire platform on that transit passenger, or not, you know, the bulk of your platform, which I feel like Singapore Airlines did, to have a 55% reduction over three or four years is has got to hurt. And at the end, and that's the other thing. They're buying a lot of planes. We were mentioning Etihad. Etihad has ordered... I think so. It has only one A380, but it's order ten in total. Whereas obviously Emirates for that is just insane. Emirates, I think Dubai Airport because of Emirates handles almost three hundred A380 departures a week. I mean, this is insane. They, they single handedly saved the A380 program. But Etihad is buying a lot of A350, so I think they've ordered uh, forty of the nine hundred version. They've ordered. More than 20 of the 1,000 version with uh, even more options. They're buying A321s, all these new planes. And they, because of that, they also have a much uh, much younger yes. fleet than most of the other uh, and, airlines. And I think well. that it's important to talk about that as well. There's, It's not just that it's convenient to stop over in, in Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Doha. They have invested significantly in the passenger experience, the end-to-end passenger experience on every level of of the service. So they have gone so far ahead of the game, not not exclusively. This isn't exclusive to the Middle East. There are other airlines and other regions that do this, but their their economy cabins are comfortable. There's IFE, the seats are good. The food is as good as you're going to get in an economy cabin. But the business class and first class, especially because they know that so much of that money is coming from from business travelers, i.e., it's on expenses. They have really dragged everybody up by the <laughs> from the bottom by investing so much in that experience to the point where um, Doha Airport has separate terminals and facilities for business and first class passengers. So it's not a question of availability and timings and just it's slightly shorter to go through Dubai, the overall experience is better. They've taken the best from of the service level from the Southeast Asian airlines and they've hired a bunch of people away from airlines like Singapore Airlines and Cathay and Thai. They've taken the best from the from the efficiency perspective of airlines like Lufthansa. Um, I can't think of many other <laughs> airlines that are ultra efficient like like Lufthansa. Uh, Lufthansa has his own also first class terminal, I think, in Frankfurt. But you're right. This is something I remember because uh, I was living back then for a little while in Cyprus. And so for me, choosing when I needed to fly to Asia, choosing a Middle Eastern airline was out of simply necessity because there was no other way. I didn't want to fly back to London than to fly again to, 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 to Asia. So I had flown Etihad to go there. And I said, okay, let's. And I looked at the price and I started flying Emirates. And very quickly it became gold member or whatever i mean status i was lucky to fly a lot in, in business class and it's true that i was like what is going on in this business class i mean and i, I and i'm even talking about the earlier models of business class the it was it was life flat but still yes. angled on emirates and i was 
honestly blown away. Then they would obviously upgrade me very liberally. So I was in first class many times, which I, first of all, I would not pay for. And second of all, I was completely, it was a new experience for me. The level of service includes, by the way, because you mentioned the end-to-end point, they have a chauffeur service. So if you have a ticket in business, and obviously first, you can actually, in a lot of cities around the world, it's included in the price that a limousine picks you up at yes. home. I mean, it's these are the kind of things that are expensive, obviously, but it's that creates obviously that this is what we're seeing currently in the debate. A lot of uh, people just talking about the experience because they're like when you compare that to a New York airline, even some airlines in Europe, they're like, well, but you know, as a as a pure customer, I prefer flying an Emirates, Qatar, or Etihad. Yeah, obviously. and in many ways, that stopover reduces the the price of the ticket substantially. So flying directly on someone like Cathay from London to Hong Kong uh, is 500 pounds for illustrative purposes. And if I went by Dubai on Emirates, which the experience is arguably comparable, it's 350 pounds. So the other thing that is that is staggering is to see the expansion of the airports over there. Yes. Obviously, these airports are just I mean, uh, Dubai is one of the largest airports in the world. Now, in terms international traffic, uh, passenger traffic is to the largest in the world. They actually building a second airport like in Dubai, which will probably cater to 140, 160 million passengers. So I think that for the UAE or for I think it was for Dubai, aviation is poised to become a quarter of the GDP by 2016. It's amazing. And in in many ways, I think it's forcing the entire industry to reevaluate the product, which is good. Anything that's incrementally improving the passenger experience, but it's, these guys are not going to let up. They're going to, the Gulf airlines are going to add 534 new wide body planes between now and 2027. So not only are they getting capacity, they're getting efficiency because these are new, more efficient airplanes. The legacy carriers of uh, and flag carriers are sitting on older airplanes. And there was a study by Credit Suisse that said that Lufthansa will need to reduce their costs on flights to Southeast Asia by 40% to stay competitive. How are they going to do that? They can't reduce the, the in-flight amenities because they're already losing on that front. They have to order more efficient airplanes. I don't envy them at all. No, I, I think we we, we could talk about this for an hour and not even scratch. The yeah, surface. I mean we're we're gonna cut because we're we're, we're a bit late today on uh, in terms of but the, the, it's the the one thing that they will have to to I think think about in in, in this region is how to manage manage air traffic control because it's becoming very heavily yes. constrained, especially because a lot of the uh, military flights are. And happening we're gonna try and get time. some folks on the show that are experts in the in the region, uh, either peripherally or directly involved with its expansion. Uh, to answer this and explore it in more in more depth, because I really do think it's a fascinating topic and is really at the at the front of the conversation. Yeah, we'll do a we'll do a, we'll do a we'll do a part two because I think and you mentioned that several times. Uh, we've seen that Etihad, for instance, is buying a lot of uh, equity in other airlines in the world, so they're seeing it. It's actually gaining weight in in the world with with other means. Uh, Emirates is pushing to actually have a very large fleet. Etihad is going into buying, you know, Seychelles and Alitalia, of course. So there's it's a very interesting shift in how the industry is seen. And this is why, again, we're seeing all this controversy currently, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Asia, whether obviously in the US, we mentioned that at the beginning of the show. So I think we'll keep talking about this and we'll invite guests to talk about it. But since we're a bit over time, let's go quickly back to Munich. Or no, there was the, the question, question of the week. Of the week. This, is, you know, well, this is a nice uh, 
one to that's kind of self-contained we can answer it pretty quickly without skipping over any of the details but it's what is the largest airline in the world by fleet size now there's a load of different ways to answer what is the biggest airline yeah i, I asked you that because we were talking about creating this show and talking about the girl airlines so i was like oh, emirates must be so big it must be there and you tell me no paul yeah not, not even not even close but that's there are many ways to answer the question, what is the biggest airline? And I think in this instance, we can we have to answer it by fleet size. We'll talk about the other, other ways in a second. But the, the largest airline in the world, we'll go straight to number one, by fleet size is Delta with 1,280 airplanes. Now, to give you some context, Emirates have 221 airplanes. So they have over 1,000 more airplanes. This is Delta Mainline and subsidiaries and feeders like Delta Connection. No matter how you cut it, it is an extraordinary number. Uh, very close to them, nipping at their heels. And number two is, is United with 1,264. Again, Mainline and subsidiaries. And in third place, American Airlines. Uh, the rest of the top 10, Southwest Airlines, uh, China Southern, which was surprising to me. Lufthansa, Air France, Air Canada, and China Eastern. So no Middle Eastern carrier is in the top 10 in terms of fleet size. I'm quietly confident that that's going to change in the next 10 years. Yeah, yeah, especially Emirates. When you when you look at the number of, of, of orders they have, the others are still a bit lagging, but Emirates will get now, there. If now, you, if you very quickly look at the question slightly differently and look at the world's biggest airlines by capacity... It is an interesting and very different story. So it goes United. So United have gone from number two to number one. Delta, American, Emirates. So Emirates have gone from not even on the list, not even in the top 25 to number four. And then the rest of it is is pretty uh, pretty similar to the previous list. Southwest, Lufthansa, British Airways, Air France, China Southern, and Singapore Airlines. Now, the difference is in the size, the average size of the, of the plane and the number of seats they can carry, and also the distance that the average flight is. So we'll, we'll, we'll post a link to the definition of revenue, revenue passenger miles and revenue passenger kilometers, because that's how capacity and uh, load factor are measured. So there you go. There's the answer to that question. And now let's... Uh, but yeah, but it, 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 it encapsulates the debate that we'll be having, because it's like... How do you deal with, you have more than a thousand aircrafts and you have a new new airlines coming up with newer aircraft, more efficient, et cetera. And how do I react? I cannot replace all my aircraft in, a, in an instant. So this is, this is interesting. And I think this is why the reason, so I'm the reason we had the question. We didn't take a question from the audience. I asked that to Alex because I wanted to know. I was so sure that Emirates was so big and actually was not that big, at, ter- at least for one part of the definition. Like you said, going to Munich, back to Germany, back to Lufthansa. So Munich is one of the two I mentioned that earlier will become the premium hubs for uh, for uh, Lufthansa. Uh, we've both flown there, uh, both on layovers. I don't know if you've ever stopped no. there, have you? <laughs> I've actually. I've uh, many times. There's a conference called DLD, which happens in January in Munich, and I've stopped there. It's a. It's. What do you think about the airport? I like it. I, I like go. it. It's a great it's a great airport for a layover and they know that and they have embraced their status as a layover airport and they have made a lot of innovations to to make it a very very good layover airport. Uh, interestingly, they ha- were named the best airport in Europe 4 years in a row. Uh, which is 
amazing because there's some good airports and there's also some terrible airports in here. But, yeah, but I love that they have embraced this. We are we know that a lot of our passengers are transit passengers and we are going to do everything we can to help those transit passengers so that they and they have a standard now that you only need 30 minutes to connect, which is insane. unbelievable. I'm 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 always honestly always scared that I'm going to miss a connection again because uh, you and me come from a non-Schengen country. We have to go through passport control, but we actually yeah, make they, it. They they have built the airport not just architecturally each terminal to to facilitate this thirty minute this layover guarantee. Well, I don't know if they even guarantee it, but it they've said that there's no other airport in Europe that comes anywhere close to this average transit time. And when you get off a plane. As you get off, there's a screen yeah. facing you that shows all of the possible onward connection for everybody on that plane. And, and this is so simple in its, in its genius, an arrow pointing you which way to turn to get to your gate. It's so simple. Yeah. The, the, the Terminal 2, which is a terminal used by Lufthansa, is especially amazing for them because it's like a huge open plaza because it's, it's, you, it's, it's a square. So in terms of architecture, it's maybe nothing like Doha in these airports we mentioned earlier, but it's a big square. It's very easy to navigate because, again, it's a square. You have an arrow. An arrow you know where you're going. It's gate that number, and there's like no obstacle. It's very well thought in terms of navigability. So in terms of the user experience, it might not be the most beautiful you'll ever see, but it's extremely, extremely efficient. And efficient. I, for that, I it's love It's a great that. airport, and they actually even have this bus service. So if you actually, if you do need to change terminals, they have a bus service that has only goes through security controlled areas. So even if you have to change airlines, terminals, you don't have to go back through security because they've built the bus route so that it always stays secure airside. Just little things like that is so simple. I would I would add though, because that's my only gripe about that airport, is that there's a lot of time you end up being bussed back to the terminal and not having a jetway. That's true. So this is my only sometimes gripe. Maybe because I'm maybe because I'm actually anxious. I'm like, I'm never gonna make my connection. I'm never gonna I've always made it. But being in a bus kind of augments my anxiety. I'm like, come on, bus, come on, driver, let's go, let's go, let's go to the door now. And I have these kind of feelings. This is maybe my only gripe. I would if you if you follow me on Twitter a few times and I apologize that I've been like Come on, or at least give me air miles while I'm seeing the last part <laughs> yeah, of my flight. You just earned point three <laughs> of an air mile, but it's they they are they are building a uh, they are building a, um it's almost done. You can see it now if you if you fly there. They're building the satellite of Terminal Two, so they're expanding basically uh, Terminal Two, so that will create more jetways, create more space as well. So it's an airport that is big. I think it's forty million passengers a year. So it's a very big airport, very important airport. And they're also thinking about a third runway, uh, which uh, we know here in the UK, it's a big debate. It's also a big debate there because one of the key things about an airport that I find very interesting, it is one of the most forward looking in terms of environment and noise yes. control. They have actually the, the descent. And I don't know if you realize that the descent on Munich is actually a bit special because they actually calculated the descent, not on the features of the surroundings, but actually to reduce its maximum the noise uh, wow. for the people surrounding the airport. So the, and it's a bit the, the, the takeoff as well. Listen to the engines and you'll see they go through different, something that's usually not happening because they wanted to limit there. And although the new runway, contrary to London, London, the new runway at Heathrow would actually impact way more people but in Munich, the new runway would not. And still, this is very German. I think it's only 1%. But still, they have, they, they, the airport is saying, okay, we'll wait. 
would not because they are at capacity at peak hours. They are okay to wait. They're okay to go to court. They have this kind of, it's a much more civilized debate, it seems, than in other airports uh, because they really went all in in terms of uh, noise control, but also environment. I mean, the airport is almost yeah. self-sufficient in terms of energy. It's an amazing airport. It is a airport great airport. It's, it's a, and I love the, and I love the a, Yes. Very. Yeah. It's a pleasure to, to transit through. If you if you need to get from from somewhere in Europe or even outside of Europe, it's a, it's a great airport to, to have a layover in. And on that, I think we'll, again, over time, but I, <laughs> I think we just like to I know, it's, uh, <laughs> we just, we love to talk. Uh, one, one last thing, uh, guys, uh, ladies and gentlemen, will listen to us next week because both Alex and I will be in Barcelona for Mobile World Congress. So the show might not be recorded on Monday, but a bit later in the week. So please be here with us. And this is why we give you that extra 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. This is bonus <laughs> content to make up for the fact that we're going to be a little bit late next week. Exactly. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Bye -bye, guys. Alex. Take care. Godspeed.